Hello, and welcome to Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. I'm your host, Inman Narrowin, and I use they-them pronouns. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a collectively run publisher dedicated to producing and curating inclusive and intersectional culture informed by anarchistic ideals. On this podcast, we have audio versions of our monthly featured zine, read by a brilliant voice actor, along with interviews with the author. We also make these really cool little quarter-sized zines of the monthly feature, which you can get mailed to you anywhere in the world if you sign up for a zine of the month club on our Patreon. But you can also read it for read along for free on our website, tangledwilderness.org. This month, we have another special guest interviewer. There is no audio feature this month. However, the interview will be made into a more digestible zine, which you can still read on our website. And by the time this you're listening to this, you will be able to do that. So go check it out. I have with me here Shane Burley, author of Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. And Shane is here to interview a couple other folks who edited this really awesome anthology called With Freedom in Our Ears, Histories of Jewish Anarchism. Shane, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you're here today? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so like you said, um, I'm author of a few books on the far right and anti-fascism. And right now I'm working on a book on anti-Semitism with my collaborator, Ben Lorber from Melville House. Um, and this book that we're talking about here sort of hit my radar as part of doing the research for that. So I thought I'd talk a little bit just about how this idea of Jewish anarchism sort of came across my desk, so to speak, or has kind of entered my life, and then a little bit about the folks that we'll be talking with. So so since about 2019 or so, I've been hearing more and more folks who offer their identity not just as Jewish, but calling themselves specifically Jewish anarchists. It seems to be part of a wave of interest um, in the historic relationship that there's been between anarchists and Jews, particularly in the U.S. amongst immigrant communities from the late 19th and early 20th century. These Jewish radicals were incredibly influential in building the labor movement and the left in general, but it's those same anarchists who are often written out of the histories entirely. So while Jewish involvement in organizations like the Communist Party have been well-documented, also there have been a really big focus of right-wing conspiracy theories, the heavy influence of Jewish anarchists um, in this history is often erased. So recently, there maybe not recently, but Verso republished a now-classic book called Yiddishland around the role of speaking Yiddish-speaking Jews in the left, and the anarchist publisher CrimeThink put out a review sort of in response that noted their copy was defective. The book didn't mention anarchists even once. So over the past few years, a number of organizations have crept up that have sort of revived this idea of Jewish anarchism in a really organized sense. So there's been Jewish anarchist discussion groups on platforms like Discord and Signal. There's radical Jewish collectives like Rebellious Anarchist Young Jews and the Fayer Collective, which people probably know because they recently wrote a piece that was published in Jewish Currents about direct action and the movement to stop Cop City outside of Atlanta. Yiddish itself is seeing a revival amongst anarchists and radicals, and that's giving a lot of people the ability to crack into old documents from Jewish history that have been overlooked or untranslated for a long time. The current wave of Jewish anarchism has also had a few signposts along the way recently, some kind of big events or, or books that have got people's interest. 
So the Yiddish Anarchist Conference that was hosted by YIVO, the YIVO Institute, in 2019. Um, recent books like Cindy Milstein's Nothing So Whole as a Broken Heart or Hayam Rothman's No Masters But God also got a great bit of interest. And there's also just been a conversation about this happening with the growth of the Jewish left in the U.S. with projects like Jewish Currents or Jewish anti-Zionist groups. So all of this sort of shows that there's a cultural shift happening and people are looking to rebuild something they think of as specifically a Jewish anarchism. There seems to be a lot of reasons for this. Young Jews want to be active in Jewish life, but they feel unrepresented by the dominant world of NGOs and modern synagogues. They often want Judaism informing their politics outside the world of Zionism. And they're also sort of rediscovering the depth of Jewish tradition for remaking the world. So there are definitely differences between the way we talk about historic Jewish anarchism and a lot of people that are reviving it contemporarily. Like, for example, there's a very big focus on Jewish religious life and Jewish ritual and kind of a turn towards looking at Hasidic and spiritual or philosophical sources and kind of reframing them to radical politics. But it, this still puts us back in the long history of Jewish anarchism in the U.S. and across the world. And so a number of radical historians are diving into largely untranslated archives um, to try and make this history accessible for a whole new generation of folks. So that gets us back to the book we're talking about today, a book that came on my radar called With Freedom in Our Ears, Histories of Jewish Anarchism. It was published recently by Illinois University Press. And the book is an anthology of writing and scholarship on Jewish anarchist history, specifically focusing on how anarchist publishing, translation, and transcultural organizing helped to build a uniquely revolutionary movement. The book is edited by two of the most important historians that are digging into this work. So the first I want to introduce is Anna Elena Torres, who is an assistant professor of comparative literature at the University of Chicago. Her book, Horizons Blossom, Borders Vanish, Anarchism in Yiddish Literature, that was published by Yale University Press, documents the transit of Jewish anarchist literature from the 19th century Russian proletarian immigrant poets through the avant-garde modernism of Warsaw, Chicago, and London to contemporary anti-fascist composers. Her work examines Jewish anarchist strategies for negotiating surveillance, censorship, detention, and deportation, very relevant right now. She's currently writing The Dancing Bear, Disability and Animality in Jewish Literature, which is a study of animality, disability, and racialization within Ashkenazi literature, folk song, and visual art. Her other research on Jewish anti-fascist literature includes translations of the Polish writer, philosopher, and art critic Deborah Vogel, and a study of Yankov Mary Zalkind, the rabbi, anti-militarist, and polyglot philologist who translated the Talmud. The other editor we're going to be talking with uh, for who edited With Freedom in Our Ears is Kenyon Zimmer, who is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas at Arlington and a member of the editorial board of the journal Anarchist Studies. He has written widely on the entangled histories of transnational migration and anarchism and is the author of Immigrants Against the State, Yiddish and Italian Anarchism in America, one of my favorites. He also previously co-edited the books Wobblies of the World, A Global History of the IWW, and Deportation in, America, in the Americas, Histories of Exclusion and Resistance. He's currently writing a book on the radical deportees of America's first Red Scare. I was so excited when reading the book that I reached out to the folks as strangers and asked if they would let me come on the podcast as a guest. So I had the chance to interview both of the book's editors about that history and what lessons it has for both the future of anarchism and Jewish communal life. 
So thank you for both of you coming on here. So I, I wanted to kind of jump in, I guess, a little bit more about your history. So have kind of the academic bio and stuff. So I'm sort of curious how both of you came to, I guess, talk about Jewish life or be involved in Jewish life and also your histories with anarchism. So I thought, Anna, I would start with you. What's your kind of history with Jewishness and Judaism and also with radical politics? Uh, sure. Thank you so much, Shane. It's really wonderful uh, to be here and to be here with Kenyon. Um, so I'm speaking to you today from uh, south side of Chicago. Uh, but where I grew up was in the Bronx in um, what was known as the Amalgamated Cooperatives, which were built as union housing by the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America in the late 1920s. Um, and so this was a, there's a documentary about it called At Home in Utopia. And uh, Amalgamated, where I grew up, was one of three of what were called uh, the Bronx Utopias. Um, these were kind of living experiments informed by socialist, communist, and anarchist ideas built uh, largely um, by Russian Jews uh, who were coming in the 1920s to New York City um, and building these cooperatives as union housing in the Bronx. Um, and culturally, the formations were really... Uh, Really special. Diego Rivera, for example, the Mexican artist made murals, uh, for one of their buildings, um, which was upstate. And there were a number of mutual aid projects as part of, uh, Amalgamate and the, and the other Bronx cooperatives, uh, which prevented all evictions during the Great Depression through these mutual aid programs. Um, there was a bus system for workers to go to the garment. Uh, factories on the Lower East Side from the Bronx. Uh, there was a free milk program for children. There was a library. Uh, there was a theater. There was a puppet theater. Um, there are these spaces kind of built into uh, the literal infrastructure of these union houses. Um, so that's where I grew up. And uh, the people around me um, were largely the age of my grandparents. And many of them were um, uh, Soviet dissidents. And the way that they practiced socialist and anarchist ideals uh, every day was very, very matter of fact. And there was also a sense of kind of a deeper history around this community in the Bronx. So uh, that's a bit about my background um, in terms of where I grew up. And the amalgamated cooperatives are still there today. Uh, they have cooperative nursing schools and uh, it's still a working class community that um, uh, uh, emphasizes housing for teachers and nurses, um, et cetera. So, uh, yes, if you're interested, there, there's a great documentary called At Home in Utopia that goes into more detail about the history of Amalgamated. Um, but that's where I'm from. And uh, in addition to living in Amalgamated and uh, having these uh, folks as my neighbors, I also grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community. Um, simultaneously. So having this very capacious idea of Jewish community where you might think on paper, okay, how is it that you are, uh, you know, Shomer Shabbos and keeping kosher and you're also living in a socialist uh, uh, space, right? It might seem contradictory if you were to only uh, look at these formations on paper, but in practice, um, it just felt like a very expansive um, uh, way of relating to Jewishness. Um, being part of these multiple communities. Um, and also some of the practices that I grew up with, like keeping kosher and now being vegan, right? So they've kind of accrued additional meanings, um, growing up keeping Shabbat and retaining that, um, but also re-signifying it as a kind of opposition to 
the, to- the totalizing effect of working life, right? Um, so there are continuities there, although you might also see them uh, as being kind of um, seemingly contradictory. I think they're actually these resonances and, and continuities and, and ways in which these two forms of Jewishness uh, can kind of echo back and forth between each other um, and both having these anarchist dimensions for me. That's really amazing. Yeah, Kenyon, I, I think you come from a, a slightly different background with this. So I guess I asked the, the politics question first, how did you came to study anarchism? And then how did that, how did you make your way to uh, being a historian of Jewish life? Yes. Yeah, so I literally came from the other side of, of the country, grew up in rural Northern California, uh, have no Jewish ancestry that I'm aware of, grew up in a non-religious uh, family. Um, and in college as an undergraduate uh, at a small liberal arts college in Vermont in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was drawn into the orbit of the so-called anti-globalization movement that was bursting onto the scene and was introduced to um, anarchist politics and activism through that. while at the same time as a student was navigating my way more and more towards um, being an academic historian. And the two interests seemed to naturally coincide as I became interested in, you know, anarchism in the then present as well as its historical roots. Um, And so it was in the process of excavating the history of anarchism in the United States at that point that I very quickly realized there were some huge gaping holes in what was available um, in the historical record, one of them being the whole history of Yiddish-speaking anarchists in the United States, which at that point virtually no nothing had been published on, um, no historical research. So I sort of ended up pursuing that history, and then in graduate school, learning to read Yiddish, essentially so that I could start doing some of that research because no one else had, and I felt like it was necessary to do anything else I was interested in, was to to first have some of those foundations. Um, So I ended up writing my uh, doctoral dissertation and my first book about both Yiddish and Italian-speaking anarchists in the U.S., and everything has more or less snowballed from there. So I I think if I'm right, the book sort of emerged a little bit out of the 2019 conference at YIVO, which was on Yiddish anarchism, the history of Yiddish anarchism. And I remember in advance of that, talking with Spencer Sunshine, who was one of the organizers of it, and him telling me that there's probably going to be no interest in this. This is way too out there. It might be a few, you know, you know, scholars that uh, have focus, but it was incredibly popular. And like, it's continued to sort of, the videos of it continue to be passed around. And it sort of was, I guess, had some origins of the book. So how did, what kind of role did you have in that conference? How did it influence your thinking and how did it lead or um, inspire pieces of the book? So Spencer Sunshine, uh, who co-organized that conference at YIVO, uh, asked me, invited me to help him organize it. Um, so the two of us sort of headed that. Uh, yeah, and we had really no 
real idea of what to expect. Uh, our sort of ideas about who would be interested in a conference at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research, we thought it would attract, you know, mostly older folks with a sort of general interest in, in Jewish history who might not be that interested in anarchism per se. And then Anna was one of the people who, uh, who we invited, who ended up presenting along with several other folks, some of whose work ended up as chapters in this anthology. And it turned out more than 450 people showed up for the conference, which is more people than I have ever spoken to. Yeah, more people than could fit in the large auditorium we were in. There were people watching the live stream in separate rooms in the Institute. Uh, thousands of people have watched parts of it online since then. Coming out of that, it was clear people were interested. And then later, I think it was that same year, Anna organized a couple panels on the similar themes at the Jewish Studies Association annual conference. Yes, so um, that was a series of workshops in uh, an academic conference. And I think um, it's worth noting that Kenyon and I are working in different uh, fields, labor history, comparative literature, uh, though I would say I also work as a literary historian. But both of us were addressing the profound erasure of Jewish anarchism in our respective fields. Um, so one of the hopes for the book would be to create collaboratively an interdisciplinary response to multiple absences and multiple erasures within different fields. Um, and so the organizing at YIVO and AJS and in other spaces, uh, uh, you know, we're kind of <laughs> working in coalition in these multiple spaces uh, where Jewish anarchism has existed um, and trying to restore uh, some of those materials um, in multiple disciplines. The book has a really kind of, it's a global focus, but it really talks about the way that a lot of these politics interacted with everyday folks' lives um, as not disconnected, not even just necessarily subcultural, but something that actually was effective in their workplaces, in their communities. So I'm curious from both of you, what role do you think, particularly with um, immigrant communities in the early part of the 20th century, what role did anarchism have in everyday Jewish life? Is it something that they would have been alien to a lot of communities? Or do you think it's something that a lot of Jewish communities, working class Jews and immigrants would have had some relationship to, would know something about, would be influencing their spaces? Yeah, I, I think part of what's kind of so astounding about the historical erasure that Anna mentioned is that in the late 19th and early 20th century in the United States, in Britain, in Russia, in Argentina, more or less virtually everywhere you found Yiddish-speaking Jews, uh, anarchism was a institutionalized part of everyday life. Anarchists were leaders and organizers and rank-and-file members of predominantly Jewish labor unions. They were publishing newspapers like New York's Freie Arbeiterstimme, the Free Voice of Labor, which was not just an important anarchist newspaper, but was an important newspaper on its own merits, as well as a, a vitally important tribune for Yiddish poetry and literature and cultural criticism that was read and taken seriously by Yiddish readers of many different political persuasions. And, you know, Yiddish anarchist intellectuals were influential and respected 
in all sorts of fields from from being medical doctors to being translators, playwrights, uh, sociologists, cultural critics, poets. So yeah, uh, for most, and again, largely speaking in, in this case of the, the Yiddish-speaking Jewish world, yeah, anarchism was, was a, a, a fairly ubiquitous presence. I mean, so I'm sort of also curious on the flip side of this, the role of actual Judaism and kind of the lives of radicals. And there's a certain ambivalence that you see in the book with Jewish radicals and religious life, you know, maybe coming from religious communities they found restrictive, but also being a part of, of radical politics that were critical of religious communities. And this is something I think is a little bit different when you're talking about Jewish anarchism today, where there's a lot more of a rediscovery of Jewish tradition. So I know, I don't know if you want to kind of lead on this, like what relationship do you think that Jewish anarchists, a lot of folks discussed in the books, what relationship do they actually have to Judaism and to practice? Is it different than we understand Jewish practice now? Uh, sure. So this is um, a question that Kenyon and I have had a lot of conversation about uh, how to model this most accurately. Um, I think that it would be uh, fair to say you could do both a very close reading of some historical texts that would show you, uh, all right, this is how one particular uh, figure is using vocabulary from uh, the Jewish religious context, and they're re-signifying it, or they're reinventing it, or they're using it uh, to a new radical end. At the same time, that's also coexisting with uh, an excoriation of religious patriarchy, uh, rejection of the rabbinate, rejection of religious power. Um, and so these, there are these uh, multiple aspects. So uh, one um, really well-known phenomenon is the Yom Kippur balls, uh, right, which were held in many areas, many cities in Havana, New York, Philadelphia, Paris, right? And these were these kind of spectacular protests in front of synagogues on Yom Kippur. People dressed up and danced and played music and uh, ate ham sandwiches very uh, demonstratively. And there were also texts written to go along with that, which would parody uh, Hebrew religious texts. But of course, in order to write a parody of a religious text, you need to know that text really, really well. Um, so we can see some of those. One was written by uh, Katerina Yevzerov Marison, really fascinating, a woman who got a degree in gynecology at NYU in the 1890s. And uh, she contributed to Freie Arbeiterstimme. She wrote a book called Women in Society, Freie Gesellschaft. Um, and she also contributed to this kind of anti-religious propaganda, which ironically also demonstrates how well versed in it she was, right? So that's one example. Uh, but there are other ways as well from a linguistic or a literary aspect where you could see how Jewish tradition was being reinvented with a kind of radical lens. For example, Anna Margolin described herself, and Margolin was uh, one of the most innovative Yiddish modernist writers. And she was also very close with Kropotkin while Kropotkin was in exile for a month in uh, in London during that month um, when they were both there at the same time. And Margolin has a letter where she says, uh, I've always been an anarchist. I'm paraphrasing. I've always been an anarchist. I've never been able to be an atheist. Indeed, in times of trouble, I spoke to God and I gave God hell. <laughs> and uh, that's one way of kind of modeling the psychological uh, straddling of having grown up with a religious background and then reinventing it in some way towards 
uh, towards anarchism. Another example would be Malka Chaifetz Tussman, uh, who's a very celebrated Jewish uh, feminist writer writing in uh, Yiddish and English. A couple decades after Haymarket in Chicago, she contributed to Lucy Parsons' newspaper, uh, The Alarm, and she wrote these uh, kind of realist vignettes and poetry against capitalism, against the factory work. And at the same time, she was also using somewhat uh, Jewish mystical language to talk about one's connection to nature. Um, so if we look kind of on the level of individual writers, you can see multiple currents. Um, but Kenyon can also speak more to kind of broader uh, ways in which anti-religiosity was being mobilized, uh, particularly the critique of religious patriarchy, ideas about uh, Jewishness as chosenness or separateness, how did they aspire to dissolve that into a kind of universalism? That's one of the tensions of Jewish anarchism, I would say. Yeah, I think broadly speaking, particularly in, in the period really covered by this anthology, the vast majority of these Jewish anarchists at least would have considered themselves as sort of militantly atheist, even if they were drawing on vocabulary and, and symbols and, and even concepts from the Jewish religious tradition, which particularly for, for, the, for the men involved, so many had pretty rigorous religious educations growing up. That was, you know, the language and the sort of constellation of concepts and symbols that they had available to them, and that would make them understandable to a a, a Jewish audience. And of course, there were always exceptions. There were people like the, the German-Jewish anarchist Gustav Landauer, people like the uh, Russian-Jewish anarchist Abba Gordon, who very explicitly tried to synthesize Judaism with their anarchism, even in some cases claiming that Judaism at its very core was an anarchistic religion or, or ideology. Those t individuals tended to be or those beliefs tended to be sort of on the margins of, of the movement. Um, and I, I think as you pointed out, Shane, that's a very different context and a very different view of religion uh, than I think we see in a lot of cases in, in the present day, where there's much more, I think, openness to religious and spiritual ritual, if not also belief in creating and maintaining a sort of distinct but radical Jewish identity. Yeah, when, when I go to Jewish anarchist events where I've been on like panels and stuff, what people want to talk to me about almost every time is they want to talk about Hasidic philosophy, they want to talk about Torah. Um, and not, and I always found that interesting because that's not the way it was, you know, 15 years ago when I first had gone to like an event like that. But I think also one thing that you're sort of getting at, I, I think of a lot of the um, Purim parties that I've been to over the last few years, which historically, like, for example, Purim drag shows were sort of a parody of the more restrictive Megillah reading events. Um, but in a way, they are now just kind of a they're part of my staple religious life. So they are, they've sort of like actually been brought back into the tradition. And so I always think it's interesting now that when we're talking about folks that were kind of critiquing the religious life, they are participating in it too. There's a certain insiderness to it, or they, they're maintaining the tradition in a sense, allowing it to sort of evolve over time. I think I also just wanted to add um, to Kenyon's point that this was not only, not only an anarchist question of what to do with these archives of religion, but that in Soviet Jewish culture as well, there was a kind of excavation 
of it. And Anna Sternschuss's uh, work on the Reuter Haggadahs, for example, the Red Haggadahs, these um, texts that remade the Passover Haggadah basically line by line. And uh, they would use the phrase that it was uh, Jewish in structure and communist in content. So some of the forms which I describe uh, were not uniquely anarchist. And I just want to historicize that this question of leftist reinvention of Jewish ritual, um, which I call reinvention, but is also a way of uh, very aggressively replacing memory with a new political imagination or a new political aspiration, uh, can be found in multiple parts of the left. It was certainly not uh, uniquely anarchist, but it would be an interesting study to compare some of the anarchist Kol Nidres with the Soviet Haggadahs, because they're both anti-religion, but perhaps there's a way of reading them closely or historicizing them that would that would show that. Um, so for example, one of, uh, one of the openings, right, for the Passover Haggadah is, today we sweep up all the chametz, right, all the breadcrumbs, and we burn them in the fire to get the house ready for Passover, right? But the first line of the red Haggadah is, today we sweep up all of the bourgeoisie and we burn them in the fires of the revolution, <laughs> right? So it's really a line-by-line -line replacement of content. So I just wanted to, to historicize that a little bit more uh, when we talk about what the anarchists were doing as well. It was not unique on the left. So I, I am curious a little bit about the role that Yiddish played. I mean, Yiddish writing and publication is a really big centerpiece of pretty much every contribution in the book and really centers. And I think that's also, I think, a way in which we're able to rediscover it now because they have such a rich record, but and also like a, a real content and dialogue that's happening. But Yiddish also seems to have had a sort of... Um, a binding quality to identity if we're walking away from strict religious traditions, then the secular avenue for expression and community building could be built in some communities around Yiddish. And I know we'll talk in a second also about translation, but what role did Yiddish publication have in kind of building that sense of community amongst Jews? And then also what role did it have with non-Jews? So that's, that's a multi-layered question. And in part, it depends on who and where and when we're talking about. So for Yiddish-speaking Jewish anarchists, obviously, Yiddish publications were incredibly important. They, although in a lot of ways, you can find parallels with other linguistic groups, you know, Italians and, you know, people who speak Italian, Spanish, English, and so on, where, you know, the anarchist press at the time combined the functions of newspapers and what we would think of today as social media and and other cultural political outlets. These were, you know, transnationally circulating periodicals, which uh, not only just reported on events sort of through an anarchist lens, but were venues for individuals or organizations to communicate with one another to, they were the main centers through which funding passed, whether that was funding for the newspaper, funding for a defense case somewhere, funding for you did the Spanish Civil War. Those that was primarily organized through publications, debates between different factions and different individuals uh, were aired primarily on you know on the written page. There were cultural dissemination of literature, plays, cultural criticism, but also importantly translations of non-Yiddish texts into Yiddish. So all of that was hugely important. But 
there are other sort of sectors of the of this historical Jewish anarchist population that either didn't speak Yiddish or preferred to utilize other languages, right? So Emma Goldman published Mother, you know, her magazine Mother Earth in English, and although she read the Freier Arbeitsstimme, she almost never wrote in Yiddish. Same goes for Alexander Berkman, uh, who published the English language paper The Blast, which was, you know, and these were publications aimed at a very different audience that were, these were publications not for a specifically Jewish audience, but for a more sort of generally conceived American audience. And then there were those, you know, there's a chapter in the book about the Union of Russian Workers of the United States and Canada, which defined itself primarily around people who spoke Russian, even though majority of its membership weren't ethnically Russian, and a disproportionate number of its you know, leaders and rank and file members were, were Jews from the Russian Empire, but who, for various reasons, foregrounded that identity, or at least the, the utilitarian value of carrying out activities in Russian, even though many of them also spoke Yiddish and uh, simultaneously sort of had one foot in, in the, the Yiddish movement. We talked a little bit in advance of coming on about the, the role of translation and sort of the politics of translation. I know, Anna, we were talking about that a little bit and also the way that other languages played a part because we're not talking about just Yiddish-speaking Jews. We're talking about Russian-speaking Jews, other Slavic languages, European and Eastern European languages, Central European languages. And I guess later on, um, I mean, maybe some earlier on, but also later on, Hebrew, I think, you note that the, the first Hebrew anarchist publication wasn't until the 50s. So what were the kind of role of translation? How was that a community building piece? But also, how was it a political element? Sure, thank you. So emphasizing the multilingualism of the anarchist movement, especially multilingualism of radicals in the U.S., is so significant. And I think there's also an implicit question uh, in your question about the absence of Ladino, people are often very curious about that. Um, and so I would note that uh, the Yiddish language is very proximate to German and the linguistic proximity, the mutual, fre frequently mutual intelligibility of Yiddish and German allowed a kind of practical coalition to be built in New York City. And Tom Goyens writes about kind of passing the baton between a generation of German anarchists and how that prepared in some ways uh, for uh, the blossoming of Yiddish anarchism in New York and Chicago. Uh, uh, Chicago and the Haymarket generation had an incredible proliferation of anarchist uh, newspapers in Lithuanian. And um, I think Kenyon can speak more to uh, just how many of them there were. Uh, Czech several in German. Um, and I don't believe that there was a Yiddish anarchist newspaper in Chicago at that time. However, there are records of Yiddish anarchists working alongside or even sharing the same offices of some of the uh, German uh, anarchists who are publishing Arbeitet Zeitung. So this mutual intelligibility, just on the linguistic level of Yiddish and German, allowed a kind of collaborative aspect. Uh, Ladino and Yiddish are not mutually intelligible in the same way. And so if we look at labor history, you might compare the collaborations of Spanish-speaking workers and Ladino-speaking workers in Chicago and in New York City, uh, because Ladino as a diasporic language of Sepharad 
uh, has retentions from old Spanish, as well as uh, aspects from uh, Jewish languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, and so Devin Nahr right now is working on looking at Ladino and uh, Puerto Rican Spanish-speaking workers who were um, building together in socialist and communist movements in New York City. Um, so I'm very excited for uh, Devin Nahr's work to come out. He's a professor at the University of Washington. Um, so we might think about this in very practical terms, German and Yiddish together, and the collaborations of German and uh, uh, Yiddish immigrant editors and Ladino and Spanish, what kind of solidarities were produced through linguistic proximity um, between Puerto Rican and Chicano uh, and Ladino and Sephardic uh, workers. Um, so there's a kind of material practicality there to take into account. It's also worth noting, thinking about the relationship that Sephardic Jews had to the Ottoman Empire and how distinct that was uh, in terms of there being a whole spectrum of possible citizenship statuses. In comparison to Ashkenazi experiences of mass migration and deportation, refugee status, uh, where being a citizen or being stateless was more of a binary relation. Um, and I recommend Sarah Abravaya Stein's work um, around ways in which Sephardic Jews negotiated these different citizenship statuses, the multiplicity of kinds of papers you could get, uh, if you were a man or a woman or a child, all of these different levels. So that also informed uh, relationship to empire as opposed to a kind of stateless critique of the state, which we see emerging or being articulated from the Yiddish anarchist press. And that may account, therefore, for this difference um, between Yiddish and Latino, uh, Yiddish and Ladino language forms of leftist response to the state. So rather than seeing it just as kind of, where is Ladino? Uh, why is Ladino underrepresented? Instead, I would say we could think about the linguistic and material reality, the difference in ways in which Jewish subjects related to the state or to empire or to statelessness, um, and also highlight what was being written in Ladino and why were Ladino-speaking Jews um, aligning themselves with new Latino immigrants um, to the U.S. So thinking about this, you know, multilingually and coalitionally and not just in terms of, of lack or why mm. weren't there Ladino anarchists. Um, there were certainly individual uh, anarchists who were Sephardic in background, famously Camille Pizarro, uh, the, the gorgeous painter, um, but he was working in Paris. So he was amongst an anarchist milieu in France. Uh, though his own particular ethnic identity was Sephardic. Um, so uh, hopefully that's helpful to try to nuance a bit of this question of language politics and try to make it more material. I mean, I'd be sort of curious. I think we talked about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't a Ladino anarchist publication in the U.S. that folks have found. Was there other kinds of radical publishing in Ladino communities? Um, is there a history of that in the U.S.? Uh, yes, there there were socialist and communist um, writings in Ladino at that time, and Devin Nahr is translating a play uh, from Ladino as well. Those kind of early um, uh, socialist communist uh, drama. So I recommend his work, uh, Devin Nahr, N A R N A A R. And and just to specify, to our knowledge, we are not aware of a Ladino anarchist newspaper being published anywhere ever. Mm. 
I'm, I'm sort of curious, um, and we didn't talk about this in advance, but I'm, I'm sort of curious about Hebrew in regards to this. And so I think this is complicated because um, I think that, that the folks who, who would have encountered Hebrew in those spaces would have either been around uh, political Zionism, around the development of a Hebrew revival, or around religious text. And so what kind of relationship did folks have the Hebrew was, for example, fluency in Hebrew common amongst the folks? Um, I'm assuming probably it would have been relegated just to religious discussions. As far as, as writing in Hebrew, you don't see that until you get the first, uh, or not even the first, you don't get that until you start seeing anarchist organizations active in the state of Israel after its formation and re the revival of Hebrew as a spoken as opposed to simply sort of written religious language. But even then, the first is the first Israeli and anarchist publication is a bilingual Hebrew and Yiddish mm. publication that's um, founded in the in the 1950s. And it's founded by a primarily Yiddish and Russian speaking Jewish anarchists who had lived in the United States before migrating to Israel. Um, so the, the first one in Hebrew was 1952. It was called Deot or Opinions. Um, that was founded in Tel Aviv in 1952. And then seven years later was the uh, bilingual one that was Hebrew Yiddish. And it was called Problemen slash Problemot. And it was published um uh, until the 1990s, actually, by someone, uh, Yosef Luden, whose uh, brother, Yitzhak Luden, published the last Yiddish Bundist newspaper. So one brother was the anarchist editor and one was the mm. uh, Bundist editor. But <laughs> even the title, Problemen slash Problemot, is really fascinating because the ending, uh, Ot, the, the plural, <laughs> is just taking the Yiddish word for problem and putting the Hebrew on the end. So you can see how at that point, uh, Hebrew was so nascent and plastic and its bilingualism was rooted in the Yiddish part of it. And that's marked in the title, right? Because it isn't the modern Hebrew word for problems. Mm. It's problemot, this kind of fusion. Um, so it suggests something about the language politics there. Yeah, one thing that was kind of interesting about and this is true in a number of the contributions from the different uh, scholars, is the discussion era element of publication, which I think is a little bit different than people often think of as journalism or think of as essay writing, but there has a sort of back and forth element uh, that today feels like you'd find an online discussion boards. It feels like debates on anarchist reddits or something like that, but they're really engaged in that. So, and it kind of highlighted the lack of consensus on a lots of very serious issues amongst there. So what are some of the biggest issues people are debating in these anarchist publications at the time? You know, there's the role of large labor unions and revolutionary labor unions. There's expropriation. There's an entire um, chapter that discusses debates around expropriation and the, the stealing of resources from revol for revolutionary movements and also sexual politics. But what did you kind of see as some of the biggest debates that are being had? Uh, so a lot of them when you boil them down, had to do with what does it mean to be both Jewish and internationalist? Um, so this was linked to, you know, how do you respond to Zionism? Or how do you respond to this other Jewish territorialist movement that had a 
its own socialist and even anarchist wing. What does it mean about language? Does it mean, you know, if you're an internationalist and you, and especially if you live in the United States and you want to, uh, you know, exhibit and foster class solidarity amongst all of the working class, does it make more sense to transition to English or to do both English and Yiddish or to focus on, on Yiddish and, and sort of give primacy to organizing amongst the Jewish working class, at least in the short term? Uh, and yeah, that th these are questions that are debated explicitly and implicitly throughout, you know, over a couple of generations of anarchists. So that's sort of one, I think, category. And another one is tactical. You mentioned the chapter on expropriations, and there's debates about sort of the role of revolutionary violence, however you might define that. Um, you know, there's an early phase of admiration for propaganda of the deed, and then uh, at least in Jewish circles, that largely but doesn't entirely sort of gets uh, subsumed under preference for things like syndicalism or education. And then I think there's also a sort of third category of arguments, uh, which, which you could frame as over the question of exactly how political is the personal? Um, mm. You know, is Jewishness and Jewish identity uh, gender roles, patriarchy, sexuality, racial identity, um, are these sort of secondary concerns, peripheral concerns, or are they central? So it's sort of a, a debate in, in you know, more modern terms about intersectionality versus the primacy of class or ethnicity or race in conceptualizing the anarchist struggle and, and anarchist goals. It seems like perennial debates too. I mean, those sound so familiar to me from political debates. I mean, I mean, they just save the same kind of conversation around your own identity and internationalism, the role of personal, interpersonal politics, particularly the role of violence or expropriation versus, like you said, the more syndicalist approach, organizing the workplaces. Yeah, and those debates can also look radically different depending on location. Mm. Um or even the same people, but talking about struggles in different locations. So if you look, for example, at the Freie Arbeitsstimme, which by the early 20th century has really sort of editorial line has moved far from propaganda by the deed to much more of a sort of gradualist um, approach. Yet when revolution breaks out in Russia in 1905, it's 100% behind the armed revolutions and expropriators of the 1905 Russian Revolution, because it's a very different context. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a sort of ethical judgment and more of a sort of tactically what makes sense in these different contexts. And if I could just say a word, we've been talking about uh, the content of the newspaper, but I also want to say a note about uh, what the newspapers looked like. So sometimes for particularly auspicious dates, such as the anniversary of a revolution, they would be printed completely in red ink. So if you can imagine uh, getting your newspaper and it's published completely in red, right? Uh, there's also a kind of um, ways in which its layout responded to the aesthetics of the day. So if in your mind, the phrase anarchist newspaper is a zine published in Kinko's, <laughs> uh, I would want you to try to imagine 
um, the mastheads with, for example, ladies draped in togas holding up banners uh, with the, the names of, of the newspapers on them, um, often a very heroic kind of visual imagery or using tropes of martyrdom as around Haymarket or uh, often having uh, um, kind of romanticized Art Nouveau uh, figures, starry skies, kind of cosmic aspirations of anarchism. I'm just trying to describe it if someone's never seen an anarchist newspaper. Visually, they were very, uh, very thrilling for the time and um, uh, would also have ads in the back, which are kind of a window into the ethnography of the world of the anarchist uh, presses readers because you would have, uh, you know, ads for the cafes and ads for other books that you could get a subscription to. Often the newspapers would be promoting one another, uh, right? If you subscribe to Freya you might really love having a bound copy of Kropotkin that we can send you. Uh, so just to point to some of the material history um, that reading the newspapers can tell you not just um, the opinions per se, but also the aesthetic and material lives of the people reading it. Anna, um, I am very tickled to hear you talk about the uh, the aesthetic of anarchist newspapers, um, because uh, re- recently I, um, you know, uh, at the time we're recording this, um, it was just recently May Day, and so it was like seeing a lot of kind of like rehashed like imagery from um, from the time of Haymarket, and I was suddenly struck with this question of wait, why were all of the anarchists of this era obsessed with like, like this Greek romantic imagery? And I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious if any, any of you know the answer to that, like why this imagery? Um, I think uh, it's such a great question. I was trying to reach my bookshelf without taking the headphones off. So I, I couldn't reach the Freie Arbeiterstimme. It was too far down the bookshelf. Um, but I can show you this is a nice uh, Yiddish copy of Bread and Freedom. It was just within arm's reach. But you can see that kind of hagiographic um, uh, image. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the, the um, putting themselves in a genealogy where they are kind of, um, you know, part of this conversation about freedom and democracy, like we could think about what Graeber does, right, with fragments of an anarchist anthropology where he's trying to kind of reclaim a different route for thinking about democratic society. And I think Mutatis Mutandis, the Yiddish anarchists were doing something similar. For example, there's a Yiddish poem by David Edelstadt, a Russian born anarchist poet who became radicalized through the transit uh, via London on his way to Cincinnati and then New York. Um, Radical key anarchist poet in Yiddish. He has a line where he, he is talking about Louis Ling uh, who is one of the Haymarket defendants, uh, a militant bomb maker who died by suicide in his cell. And he compares uh, Lewis Ling to having a face like Brutus and being an, um, you know, so there's all of this Brutus imagery and he's talking about this kind of heroic martyrdom uh, in contrast to Lewis Ling's own espoused way of speaking. 
So it's a, it's aesthetic and visual, but it, you also see it in the poetry, this kind of mobilization of a deep history or a deep genealogy that can say, oh, oh, there's, there's also anarchism that runs from right, the origins of democracy, quote unquote. Uh, that might be part of it, um, kind, kind of claiming this, this lineage uh, for anarchism. Whoa, cool. Thank, thank you for diving into that. Um, yeah, I, I've also heard that Lewis Ling was considered to be um, incredibly hot and fashionable um, by reports. Yeah, my student said he looked like Channing Tatum last week when we were talking about it. <laughs> oh my God, he does look like Channing Tatum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I've heard that um, uh, like all of the anarchists of the time would would try to emulate his style. Like an anarchist sorry, magic this is mic. A, yeah, this is a, a funny tangent, but thank Where's you for the budget indulging me. <laughs> for the, the great telenovela of the Yiddish anarchists. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the verse, by the way, if you want to hear it. Um, so yeah. this was a series of elegies that Edelstadt wrote using basically, it's basically docu-poetics. He was basically taking the transcript of the Haymarket speeches from the courtroom, translating them into Yiddish, turning them into uh, poetry. And then these, this suite of poems about Haymarket Edelstadt published them every year in Freie Albertestime in the two weeks leading up to November 11th. So a kind of reinscribing of Jewish memorial time, this annual publication. Um, so in this, um, so he wrote a poem about all of the Haymarket defendants and the one about Ling, Edelstadt writes, um, Er steht vor mir in Strom von Licht, auf der Welt's verblutiger Biene. Es ruht auf sein wunderschönem Gesicht der Freiheitshelle gestrine. Jung und kräftig in schwarzer Locken, mit der starken Odlerblick, wie brutes Stolz und unerschrocken, war er in Freiheitskrieg. So, in a stream of light before me, he stands upon the bloodstained stage of the world, upon his splendid countenance, the holy presence of freedom unfurled. Young, dark-tressed, vigorous, with the strong gaze of an eagle, like brave and fearless Brutus, he stood for freedom's struggle, uh, in my translation. So, yeah, there's this kind of fascinating thing that Edelstadt is doing, where he talks about the presence of the Shekhinah, the feminine emanation of God, Kabbalistically, uh, sits upon the face of Louis Ling, and Ling looks like brave and fearless Brutus. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there with mysticism, with uh, this kind of classical genealogy, um, and he's transforming these familiar images to create an anarchist poetics that's new. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just so interesting to. I want to. I want someone to write who's much smarter than me to write about this. But um, this um, the the like the ways in which different groups of people like um, try to build mythologies for themselves and like what that kind of gets based off of and like where like where things kind of like the the imagery and the um, historical kind of mythologies that people like latch on to and like yeah this, this is not really a question or a coherent statement but it's yeah always want to think about think about that stuff 
I think I think that recent article by the Fire Collective does a version of this where they use the language of Kabbalah and sort of the the breaking of divine vessels to talk about direct action and eco sabotage as sort of like being in the same universe of one another, which is in a way I think that actually does connect with people, but it has that same element of like this is the language from which we discuss the world, so let me discuss the rest of my world with it, you know. So I, you know, as, as two folks that have sort of a foot in the Yiddish world, I've been sort of thinking a little bit about, I guess, on the one hand, how did these publications sort of cease publication or how did they kind of creep their way out of communities? But also, how has Yiddish changed? I, I, I was having a conversation, I was spending some time with some Hasidim um, and doing interviews with them. And I was with someone I think is a Belzer Hasid and he had to step out and talk to his daughter for a second and he was speaking in Yiddish. He came back and he's like, Hey, you know, those Yivo people, they wouldn't have been able to make heads or tails of the Yiddish I just used. Um, and so I was, I'm thinking that's sort of interesting too. And also thinking of a lot of the, uh, Haredi publications and the kind of Yiddish, how it's changed over time. But then also, I guess, I don't know if this, you could tell me if this is fair to call it a revival of Yiddish, um, a friend of mine, Lisa Roth, who is in the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, has, uh, her grandmother was a Yiddish um, opera writer, and they just put put it on Broadway, I think, last year, uh, which she was totally surprised by. But there was so much interest in Yiddish theater that it sort of started to revive these things she thought was lost. It had never been translated or anything. So like, what's how has Yiddish sort of changed um, in your experience, or how is it changing? I mean, language is plastic. It's always plastic. And there were particular challenges that uh, Jewish immigrants were finding when they um, arrived, say, in New York City, and the kind of Yiddish that they may have spoken in the place where they came from was now different because they were they were engaging with um, uh, Deutschmarisch or a more Germanic, more Germanic register. And Tony Michaels writes about this. Um, and he has this example where uh, the term uh, chaver might be used for comrade, or you might use the more Germanic term genosse, meaning comrade. And so genosse would be uh, abbreviated. You could write it like G-E-N, period. And so Tony Michaels talks about uh, re- recent Ashkenazi immigrants reading the New York-based Deutschmarisch Germanic newspaper, and they would read, oh, there's Jen... Irving, there's there's Jen Cohen. Only in America are all of these anarchists generals, right? Because the term Genosa was so specific to one particular region, and they might not have encountered it before. Uh, so I I wouldn't say that its plasticity is new per se. There was always a negotiation between multiple forms of Yiddish, um, and similarly, if you look at the waves of language reforms. Uh, during subsequent iterations in the Soviet Union, these very carefully planned out language reform projects as part of a Soviet imperial project, where the language was respelled phonetically as a way of severing the structure of Loshan Kodesh or Aramaic uh, and Hebrew within the Yiddish language in order to make it more accessible, uh, in order to make it phonetically readable. And so there's this kind of political plasticity of Yiddish in, in many places on the left at that time. And we could look, for example, at uh, those Soviet writers who continued to use the religious corpus as a kind of resistance against the persecution um, of Soviet Jews. 
is a kind of reassertion, even within the language, of a particular identity. So in one place, that kind of language might be resistance against assimilation. Uh, in other places, the politics of language might be a gesture towards internationalism. I wouldn't say that there's a single core or a single linguistic politics there. It's so dependent on the orthography and so dependent on the location and on historicizing what was happening with Yiddish in that moment. I can give you more examples, but I don't know how many Yiddish uh, 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 folks are listening. See, we can go on. (laughs) (laughs) On on the other side of that question about the sort of resurgence in interest in Yiddish by people who, for whom it's not a first language. uh, No, that's absolutely there. And it's been largely a sort of 21st century resurgence amongst, you know, grandchildren, great grandchildren of Yiddish speaking immigrants. So the, in one sense, the actual origins of this book go back to this resurgence because Anna and I first met in 2006, 2000, I think. That's right. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. At uh, an intensive Yiddish summer language program at the Yiddish Book Center in, in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, where m- most of the other folks in, in that program um, were, yeah, second, third, fourth generation um, Jewish immigrants in the, the U.S., Canada, Australia, uh, whose grandparents or great-grandparents uh, had been Yiddish speakers um, and who were interested in sort of recovering that aspect of their own um, history and identity. But yeah, it, it's a very different Yiddish than, I'm sure, than is you know, still a spoken living language in in some of these other communities that sort of, right, in a sense, frozen in time. The comparison was also made sort of reversively to to Hebrew. If, you know, modern Hebrew was constructed to have, you know, modern secular words in it, and earlier Hebrew didn't have those, a lot of modern Yiddish speakers have just, you know, much more focus on yeshiva topics and things like that. And so it just ended up evolving in that kind of interesting way. So I think, you know, the big question I have, I think, when starting to read this book, but even hearing about it and the sort of excitement around the book and the scholarship and all the other kind of projects that we've sort of talked about, is why the interest in Jewish anarchism has been so heavy lately? And why has it sort of maintained itself over the generations? Why is this as a concept so meaningful to folks? I don't know if you've had thoughts about, like, why this research really does seem to... um, to really connect with people in a profound way. And I'm curious, like, why you think that it's done that? Um, I think that there's something really capacious about Jewish anarchism, its multilingualism, its, its yes andness, in a sense, thinking again about the importance of multilingualism and uh, contrasting that with uh, Zionist single language ideology, right? Just Hebrew and nothing but Hebrew or the language politics of the Bund, Yiddish primarily. Yiddish will be uh, what unites the Jewish working class. That kind of single language politics with the multilingualism of Jewish anarchism, right? Harkavi, for example, the linguist editing a trilingual dictionary, uh, dictionaries that are still used today. So there's something capacious and multitudinous about it, but at the same time, 
Anarchism is unrelenting against capitalism, against borders, against the military, against anything that diminishes the autonomy of the body. And so I think that combination uh, can really resonate with abolitionism today, with uh, the dissolution of borders, taking an unrelenting stand um, against militarized borders, affirming the autonomy um, of reproductive rights, of trans life. Um, so uh, thinking also about decolonial movements, articulating a relationship to land sovereignty and to language transmission. So I think uh, not to collapse the differences between, say, genealogies of Black feminism or abolitionism at all, but I think that there is space, <laughs> which is both militant and unapologetic in anarchism and also very capacious, which other iterations of a singular platform or a singular language um, may not have that space for people in the present moment, respectfully. <laughs> you know, my, my friend uh, Benjamin Case wrote this great essay a while back called Decolonizing Jewishness, I think for Tikkun. And one of the ways that he was talking about this is that a sort of decolonial framework kind of gives you your Judaism back or gives people kind of your cultural specificity back and gives people a lot of things to rediscover. Um, and that's an exciting place to be in. I'd be like, oh, wow, now I'm going to bring kind of this diversity of ways of being into my life and all these great traditions and, and find out what utility they have. So there's sort of a process by which people have been given permission to sort of rediscover their histories again, or at least to integrate it in a very meaningful way. Right. On the, on the one side, for a lot of Jews looking for radical alternatives, right, the sort of collapse of, of Soviet communism, the disillusionment with both the U.S. and, and Israel, and wanting to center things like um, LGBTQ plus uh, concerns, decolonial concerns, anti-racist, feminist concerns, um, right? I think looking for it, a sort of alternative genealogy of Jewish radicalism outside of communism or Zionism or, or leftist, you know, labor Zionism or social democracy, uh, right? I think historically anarchism made more room for those concerns and contemporarily it, it allows for, in general, much more room for those concerns than some other strains of uh, leftist political ideology. Um, and then on the other side, right, I think that there's also, you mentioned this uh, earlier, Shane, and more recently, more anarchists who are Jewish identifying themselves specifically as Jewish anarchists, which I think is, um, is definitely something that we can see emerging, I think, in part in response to resurgent anti-Semitism in the U.S. in white nationalist circles in response to things like the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh in, in 2018, um, I think it sort of caused a lot of people to reevaluate um, their own Jewishness and center it more in, in their politics. What kind of lessons do you think do you think are most important coming out of some of the discussions that we have in the book? It's not obviously it's a Jewish anarchist history, but it really is also a kind of radical political history that I feel like has really big implications far beyond that. So what, when you're kind of looking at those histories and doing your research, what are the big lessons you kind of wish people to encounter, um, engage with? What do you want kind of brought into the present? 
I would be interested in thinking about this research as a kind of resource for collective political imaginations. There's a line um, by Diane de Prima in Revolutionary Letters where she says, the ground of imagination is fearlessness. And so I'm interested in how this archive might offer a political imagination in the same way that the anarchists were writing about themselves were invested in anarchist history and anarchist genealogy. They wanted to read the Talmud as a kind of anarchist ethics. They wanted to think about the Essenes, right? The ancient uh, all-male brotherhood. Uh, they wanted to think about the Essenes as a kind of proto-anarchist brotherhood. They were interested in reading history. Uh, they were interested in mutual aid as imminent within the material, physical world. Um, so this tendency towards uh, reading with history with an anarchist lens, um, I think it has its own genealogy, thinking about world history as a kind of archive for uh, the political imagination for what's possible. To think of how our political imaginations have been narrowed so catastrophically, uh, to think that present forms of life are the only possibility. Um, I hope the book can counter that. But at the same time, it's also a challenge to not romanticize it or to be too protective of what we're recovering and to also think about where were the moments when Jewish anarchists did not betray their whiteness, where they still let women do all the work, where were their ideals of free love just reaffirming patriarchy and women's suffering rather than actually easing it. So that's part of the challenge, too, of uh, remaining critical in this process of recovery. Yeah, and I think in terms of providing a usable past, I think just seeing that Jewish anarchists can and have been major, pivotal, central figures in labor movements, revolutionary movements, uh, whether those were specifically Jewish or not, um, in cultural uh, movements, all the way from you know Yiddish poetry to sort of American modernist painting and photography, um, that there's so much of this history that the anarchist sort of origins of it are hidden from most people, even if you might be familiar with some of the individuals or, or institutions involved, right? You know, just two examples. One is, you know, the union Unite Here, its origins lay in the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, within which anarchists played a huge but largely forgotten role. The other example that I like to use, especially for people who live in New York, is the Manhattan Bridge uh, was engineered by the Jewish anarchist Leon Moiseev. There's a plaque on it that, you know, that, that specifically acknowledges uh, Moiseev's contribution. But even on his Wikipedia page, there's no mention of the fact that he was also a dedicated lifelong anarchist who, edit, who edited a Yiddish language anarchist journal in the 1890s called the Freier Gesellschaft, Free Society. Um, you know, so again, it's sort of, this anarchist pass is literally built into the everyday infrastructure of Manhattan, but is somehow invisible. Um, and then putting that rant aside for a moment, in terms of a usable pass, I think what's also important about this anthology is it shows there's no one right way to be a Jewish anarchist, right? There are many pasts 
Jewish anarchists today who are insurrectionists or syndicalists or educators or painters or poets or doctors or you know neighborhood organizers um, or birth control advocates who speak English or Yiddish or Esperanto, right? They're all carrying on in the, you know, the tradition of one strand of Jewish anarchism or another. Um, and there's one, there's one quote that, that we quote in our introduction uh, from the, the Jewish anarchist historian, Martha Acklesberg, who wrote an amazing book on uh, Spanish anarchist woman called Free Woman of Spain, in which, so in a different context, she writes, no one should be forced to choose among aspects of his or her identity as the price for political or communal belonging. We are each whole beings capable of multiple commitments to a variety of collectivities. And I think that really sums up what the book illustrates is right the, the almost innumerable ways in which Jewish anarchists of the past combined different commitments. And I think that also at the same time provides some guidance for uh, radicals in, in the present to not be, or to explore the different ways they might reconcile different commitments to mul multiple groups, causes, and identities, rather than feeling like they have to choose one or the other. Yeah, the, the presence of Esperanto was a whole other element I found really fascinating in the book, because I think it gets to what we talked about earlier, that contention between the particular and the universal, which is, I mean, that's something I, I think is present in most political conversations now, Jewish or otherwise. Um, and I thought the book was a really amazing way of kind of tracing our history back to that multiplicity. And I think it does, like both of you say, offers up kind of a, um, a diverse range of ideas for the future while having a critical look to the past. Um, well, I know we have to close out. I wanted to, to last before we get to the final piece, the, the second to last piece, is just um, if we could check in about what you're both working on next. Kenyon, I sort of preempted you because I, I was in conversation with AK Press the other day, and they mentioned that you were working on um, putting out an edition of Joseph Cohen's book. So I thought I would, you know, uh, see where that's at. And then same thing from you, Anna. Yeah. So Joseph Cohen, who's a former, who was an editor of the Freier Arbeiter Stimme, uh, wrote in 1945, the only book length history of Jewish anarchism in America. It was published in Yiddish in around 1980. It was translated by hand into English by the anarchist Esther Dolgoff. Uh, and that translation I've been working with to fully annotate uh, and edit uh, to be published by AK Press, hopefully sometime in 2024. Um, yeah, and Shikoya Kenyan, it's incredible. It's going to be such a huge contribution to have that be accessible. It's something I've seen referenced in book after book, and uh, I always assumed that I'd never, <laughs> never be able to take a look. I know there was a physical uh, volume and an archive, so... What are you working on now, Anna? What, what kind of comes next? Uh, sure. So right now I've been working on a project, a book titled The Dancing Bear, and it is about, you don't have to include this, it's not really about anarchism, but uh, it's about uh, the history of dancing bears in the Russian Empire. Yeah, <laughs> about it. So before we close out, um, is there is there anything that we did not cover that uh anyone would like to uh say before we before we go 
Uh, thank you for asking. Um, we spoke a lot about language politics. And one note that I wanted to add, we spoke about the multilingualism or all the different um, uh, ways in which immigrant multilingualism allowed coalitions to be built. But I wanted to say that in addition to that perhaps more practical approach to language, there was also the utopian uh, linguistic aspect around Jewish anarchism. Um, there was Esperanto, as you mentioned, which uh, was very popular in some ways and had a lot of backlash in other realms. Uh, Esperanto being a language which was uh, designed, it was constructed to be universally intelligible as a second language. So it wasn't supposed to be imperial. It wasn't supposed to replace any other languages, but it was supposed to be a universal second language that could be used for the translation of text. And some anarchists found this really thrilling and others uh, had a lot of concern that this kind of utopian language might become imperial or actually um, uh, have, have a kind of colonial effect. Um, but it wasn't the only constructed language. There was also a language called AO, which was invented uh, by um, the brother of Abba Gordon, who was mentioned earlier, uh, Wolf Lvovich Gordon. Um, and he came up with a linguistic theory that was kind of anarchist linguistic praxis. Um, and his idea was that this language, AO, uh, would eventually be able to speak not just to everyone in this planet, but it would be an intercosmic, mathematically pure language. And it was part of a kind of anarcho-cosmic uh, idea or aspiration uh, from that time. And one of the ways in which uh, AO, they hoped it would achieve these anarchist aspirations, was that it would get rid of uh, gender markings as a way of signifying the end of male oppression. And it would also get rid of all of the possessive cases, possessive pronouns in the genitive case, uh, as that signified property relations. So this was a kind of prefigurative idea, right? If we change the language, then we can change the world. The plasticity of language will create a new form of life. Um, and though AO might be the most spectacularly cosmic iteration of that, I think there are also evocations in thinking about, um, for example, language change around gender, having a multiplicity of pronouns um, in multiple languages now, or thinking also about uh, language change like Latina, Latino, Latinx, Latina, thinking about uh, how can language become more plastic and inclusive as a way of prefiguring another way of speaking to each other and therefore building comradeship amongst each other, amongst one another. Um, so I wanted to mention that at the end to think, uh, think also of the utopian aspects of language as well as the material, which was very much on the table at the time. There's sort of a world building aspect to the publications themselves. And so like, I like the power that they're imbuing words that kind of make the world a bit Right. Every time you call someone comrade, you're trying to make them your comrade, right? Should we close, should we close with, with pluggables where folks can find everybody? I'll say I, folks can find me on Twitter at, at Shane underscore Burley one. That's, that's where I punish myself publicly. <laughs> um, where can else folks find you to, to kind of check out your work more? Um, I deleted my Twitter account after after Musk took over, but uh, you can find uh, some of my work and uh, information about 
ongoing projects at uh, my website, kenyonzimmer.com, K-E-N-Y-O-N-Z-I-M-M-E-R. I do still also have a Facebook page if people still use that. Uh, if you want to read more of my work, there are links to it on my uh, department page, Comparative Literature at the University of Chicago, and that should have links to PDFs um, if you would like to read more of this research. Wonderful. Um, and Shane, do you have anything you would like to plug? I think just the same stuff we uh, mentioned before. Um, I have a book coming out. And I think they are announcing it as March of next year from Melville House Books. Um, it's called Safety and Solidarity, uh, Fighting Anti-Semitism and Winning a Just World, um, co-authored with my buddy Ben Lorber. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thanks everyone so much for coming on the podcast. And we'll talk to you another time. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Also, you can rate and review and like and subscribe or whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. But also just tell people about it. It's the main way that people hear about the show and honestly one of the better ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity... Consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month, anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Some updates. As of right now... Um, you can go get our new book, To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living, by Ami Weintraub. It is a wonderful, just absolutely amazing collection of essays um, that made me cry a lot. Um, you can listen to me and Ami talk about it um, on, like one episode back um, on the feature Releasing the Land. Uh, there's a really cool interview that I did with Ami and B. Uh, reads the first chapter of the book. So go check that out and go uh, order To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living on our website. We have a couple other wonderful podcasts on the network. There is, of course, Live Like the World is Dying and the Anarcho Geek Power Hour. Our theme music is by Margaret Kiljoy. Our zine layout is by Cassandra. And thanks to the lovely mountain goblins that mail out the feature every month. That's all my plugs except for a very special series of shout-outs to these wonderful people who have helped make this podcast as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben-Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Hans, Oxalus, Janice and Odell, Paige, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the dog. Thanks so much for your support. It means so much to us and has allowed us to get so much done as a collective. 
And lastly, a lot of the features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Next month, we have a piece of short fiction called First Tracks. Stay well. We hope you come back. <laughs>